This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, October 21st. I'm Gavin McGough. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, new med center position works towards equity. Listening club gets exiled in Guyville. A day in the life of a miner with Fintan Cole. And a mountain weather forecast. Callie Granita had left Telluride and her work in the medical industry behind when she went home to Argentina to earn a degree as a court interpreter. She then moved to the East Coast and planned to begin a new career. But after a chance run-in with Jimena Rebolledo Leon, a longtime nurse at the Telluride Medical Center, her plans began to change. So um, I was studying in Florida to go that route to the courts. When I was coming back to Colorado, we, I met with Jimena, no, we met at the airport in Atlanta and we sat together at the plane and she's like, you are the person I have been waiting for. I have the job for you in Telluride. Granita is now the medical center's bilingual health access facilitator. She is the first person to ever serve in the role. Her work has quickly become crucial as she helps to organize appointments, transportation, billing, and interpretation services for many of the health center's patients. The health system in the state, it's a little crazy. It's a lot crazy. So my role here is to help those patients, English speakers or Spanish speakers, to make appointments, say, in Montrose Memorial, or if they have to go to St. Mary's in Grand Junction, if they have to see a specialist, if they have to find a dentist that is a network with their insurance, stuff like that, that they get, like, they don't know what to do. I do some research, I call and I get them connected and I make the appointments and stuff like that. Navigating the health system is especially difficult for people who speak English as a second language or who are undocumented and therefore uninsured. Challenges accessing health care come to fall acutely on Telluride's immigrant and Latino population. Rebolledo Leon says that witnessing how these challenges affected Telluride's Latino population sparked her efforts to create Granita's position. Think about our immigrant population who is the backbone of this community, who without them, we our doors do not open. The medical center doesn't open. It doesn't get cleaned. You know, like all these pieces that we think about about our essential workforce and our fellow community members, If they cannot access medicine at a price that they can afford, then they're hugely problematic. Rebolledo Leon says that the job, beyond being a mere interpreter, is someone who will advocate for their patients in a complicated health system. It's not just a bilingual person. It has to be someone who is willing to get on the phone and plead with specialists for a discount for their undocumented, therefore uninsured patient. Do you know what I mean? So it's yep. not just being bilingual, yep. it's having wherewithal to understand how important it is and fighting for it. In Granita, it seems that the health center has found that person. Granita laughs as she recalls her former nickname around the med center offices. Actually, my nickname <laughs> before was Mama Cali, because I was always like, oh, they need someone here, go talk to them. Oh, I know this person here, maybe they can help you. It's been like, I don't know. When Jimena when said, this is meant for you, I'm like, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe after all these years of knowing people and whatnot. The work of finding resources, connections, and funding for patients extends to all hours of the day, Granita says. 
Many clinics in the area have no medical interpreters, so that job often falls to her. In many, many places, they don't have interpreters. So, like, for example, um, I have a patient who's been going to Norwood, the, the dentist office there, and when she goes there, they don't have an interpreter, so she calls me. So I go to a room and I interpret for her, even though she's in Norwood. I mean, I take the extra step. If I'm not busy, obviously I can do it. For the most part, I've been able to help her. Yeah. But um, yeah, it doesn't end here. And it's not only eight to five, you know, it, it goes. Both Granita and Rebolledo Leon say that the position is constantly at risk of losing funding. The Telluride Medical Center makes money largely through reimbursement from insurance companies, so un- and underinsured patients are simply not as lucrative for a medical center always trying to make ends meet. Nevertheless, Rebolledo Leon says that the new position has already had a clear impact. We're scrambling always to fund it, um, but it's, you know, Kali's She's incredible. The, wor the work that she's been doing, we've seen our mammography rates improve. We've seen our uh, annual physical exam rates improve. Like we are just reaching more of our immigrant patient population and uh, anybody who just needs who needs a little bit more assistance in making things happen. They're also benefiting from this. In the ongoing fight to make the U.S. healthcare system more navigable and equitable, Granita's work is just a drop in the bucket. But it seems that patients across Telluride are already feeling the many, many ripples. This Monday, the Wilkinson Public Library holds its monthly listening club. It's like a book club for albums. Laura Colbert will lead the October club with her work of choice, Liz Fair's 1993 Exile in Guyville. KOTO News spoke with Colbert about her selection. Originally, after she came home from college and stints in a couple cities, she was like living at home and did this thing that now you, I feel like you hear about more often, but was very unusual at the time. Was she just recorded herself in her bedroom on a four track with a guitar and her voice, and that was it. And certainly very unusual for the time. Made some cassettes. They got out. Some people liked them. Some people dubbed them. Eventually, somehow a cassette or two made it to a major record label, and she uh, ended up signing with, I think, Matador Records for Exile and Guyville. This album was originally conceived as a track-by-track -track response to Rolling Stone's Exile on Main Street. What's interesting to me is that most people don't know this or forgotten this or what have you, which I think speaks to the fact that the album really stands on its own. That's not just some novelty, but that was originally what it was, but she just took the most macho <laughs> rock band of the time, probably, and decided to do this sort of track-by-track -track response to one of their, their major albums. That's Exile in Guyville, Exile in Main Street. There you go. If you ask me how I first heard about it, I, I wouldn't be able to answer that. It's sort of been lost to time. Maybe it was college radio, maybe it was the local indie rock station, because this was considered, at the time, it was indie rock. <laughs> there was this category. And um, it just, 
lyrically really struck me. It also sounded different, uh, just the sonically, the instrumentation. It was pretty stripped down, wasn't super produced. But there was something about what Liz Fair had to say that really worked for my late teens and early 20s. There was this one track called Help Me Mary that was my was my anthem for a while. It's the voice of somebody, um, a woman singing about these boys sort of unaccountably living in her house. Um, and it, one of the lines I love is, they, she talks about how they leave suspicious things in the sink. They leave suspicious things in the sink. They make rude remarks about me. And at the time, I was living in, um, I was going to say, well, can't say it on the air, so I call it S-hole apartment, with a couple of male roommates, dude roommates. And so that line really stuck with me. And it just sort of goes on about how annoying it is and, but somehow they seem to be succeeding just through sheer hubris and she's sort of watching this as the other roommate and it just was so similar to my experience. I will say one of those two roommates is still a dear friend. He's great. However, at the time, at age 21, this song really um, stuck with me. Liz Fair very much is looks like the girl next door and kind of is in the sense that um, she grew up in a very wealthy part of Chicago and she studied at Oberlin and et cetera. And it was as if you looked at the girl next door and found out she had this sort of inner seething, turbulent life internally. And that was coming out in these songs. And so in some ways, maybe that was sort of, I mean, I didn't grow up in a wealthy part of Chicago, go to Oberlin, but there was something to that was really interesting in that she wasn't sort of the packaged pop Madonna or um, the really tough Courtney love or something like that. It was something a little different. You know, she's taking on the sort of uh, patriarchy of, of the rock world, but also sort of more generally. I mean, the thing she, she talks about, you know, she's talking about loudish men and the trials and tribulations of relationships and gender inequality, female sexuality, and a pretty sometimes explicit and sometimes clever and sometimes subtle way but it's certainly all of that is woven throughout all the songs and there's just uh here we are <laughs> still things that need to be talked about Laura Colbert will lead the October Listening Club on Exile in Guyville on Monday, October 24th from 6 to 7 p.m. at the Telluride Music Company. More information is available at telluridelibrary.org. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. 
Basketball is on the brain. This week on A Day in the Life of a Minor, Telluride High School's Finton Cole brings the latest. Have a listen. This is Finton Cole on your sports update. Boys Varsity Basketball starts this December with a home game against the Uray Trojans. I have the boys basketball head coach, Mrs. Yana Pollard, who's getting ready herself ready to hand out the jerseys for the season. Ms. Pollard, how long have you been coaching basketball? I've been coaching basketball technically since I was a player in high school as a requirement to be on the varsity team to coach summer clinics to younger players. Um, and I officially started coaching when I worked with the Cal women's basketball team. Um, but I've been coaching here at Telluride Middle and High School for the last three years. How is your time with the middle school basketball team? It's been great. We just started about three weeks ago just with practice. Um, the boys had their first game on Tuesday of this week, um, and it's been great. We have over 40 student athletes coming into the gym every day to play. And, yes, we're getting to know each other um, and know the game of basketball some more. When was the first time you recalled them playing basketball? You know, our student athletes all have a wide range of experience. Some of them have played with me before the last year or two, and some of them this is the first time in the gym. Are there more games coming in the future other than your A? They sure are. We have a lot of um, teams in our division. If anyone's interested in our schedule, you can find it at TellurideAthletics.com. Just go under their winter sports category, and you can find the boys' middle school schedule posted right there. What skills will you have for winning the championship that you will put into this year? That's a great question, Fenton. Obviously, our goal since we won the championship last year is to keep the championship here at home in Telluride. Um, we have to do a lot of things, but our key is boxing out, getting the rebounds, hustling, and communication. And finally, who's your favorite NFL team and why? Oof. Well, unfortunately, I grew up as a New York Jets fan because my family's from Brooklyn, New York, and it's a firefighting team. So I still follow the Jets, but I actually watch all NFL games because I love football. Ms. Pollard, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you, Fenton. Good to see ya. I'm Fenton Cole, reporting live from Telad High School, and we'll see you next week. The Environmental Protection Agency will be in Lawson Hill next week to assess mine tailings in the area. Last year, the EPA identified a number of locations that contained high levels of lead and arsenic. Now we're coming back for phase two of our assessment where we're really going to try to figure out uh, how much tailings we're dealing with in the area. That's Joni Sandoval with the EPA. So we'll be probing a little bit or digging holes to see how far down the tailings go and how far down it is to groundwater in case the tailings go all the way to groundwater. And then we'll also be looking at um, really trying to ensure that we've got accurate boundaries. And that's just to be able to tell how much material we have so we can start talking about uh, future ways of potential remediation. She adds they'll be doing initial studies on several other areas that might contain toxic tailings. The EPA will be using hand tools, augers, carts, and a generator to collect samples near the Galloping Goose and Galloping Goose connector trails. The trails will remain open, but individuals should expect activity and generator noise nearby. 
The EPA will be conducting work in Lawson Hill Monday, October 24th through Friday, October 28th. After the agency consolidates its data, it will return to San Miguel County over the winter and spring to discuss remediation efforts with the community. For anybody who's been to the mind-bending hip camp deep in the wacky heart of the West End, it comes as no surprise. Camp V has been named as one of the bright ideas in travel by Condé Nast. The list of 56 destinations, hotels, and organizations that are shaping the future of travel are featured in CN Traveler magazine. Camp V, a hotel and campsite based in the old Van Cora mining town, is praised by CN Traveler for building a quirky and innovative destination while also rehabilitating the local community and economy. Natalie Binder, who opened Camp V in 2020 after overseeing extensive renovations, says it's an honor to make the list, and she remains excited by Camp V's ever-expanding mission. The Gila River Indian community in Arizona announced plans to conserve a significant amount of its water supplies. KUNC's Alex Hager reports that'll be used to prop up water levels in Lake Mead. That's a reversal from the tribe's plan in August to keep more water. Now they're taking advantage of new money from the federal government. Gila River is seeking payouts from the bipartisan infrastructure law, which are part of a program to incentivize water cutbacks. Stephen Rowe Lewis is the community's governor. We want to be good actors. You know, we, we want to uh, make sure that the precious water supplies that we have, that it's going to go to a sustainable solution. This is just one conservation plan in a patchwork of other water-saving agreements across the Colorado River Basin. The federal government is putting pressure on water users to cut back as climate change keeps driving a two-decade mega-drought. I'm Alex Hager. Ballots are arriving in Colorado mailboxes, and the language within can vary depending on jurisdictional lines. Keeping up with what's on the local ballots can get confusing, especially in areas where municipalities and counties are right up against each other. But there's a new tool for keeping track of the local ballot issues within the state. The Colorado Health Foundation launched its local ballot measure tracker this week. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Shannon Young got the details from Kyle Rojas Leglider, Senior Director of Policy Advocacy at the Colorado Health Foundation. What was the impetus behind compiling all of this information into this type of project? So the impetus really started from us grappling with the complexity of ballots here in Colorado that you mentioned. So um, for some of the things that appear before voters in every cycle, there's some consistency on our ballots, regardless of where you live in Colorado. So the big statewide elected offices like governor, secretary of state, state treasurer, those kinds of things, you know, appear more or less the same, regardless of what specific community you happen to call home in Colorado. And then usually in every cycle in Colorado, there's a handful of statewide ballot measures where voters get to decide directly on specific policy questions. 
This year's general election in 2022, there are 11 statewide questions um, that regardless of the community that you call home, we'll all see those same set of 11 on our ballots this year. But then once you go move further down the ballot, you could have lots of additional questions or a few additional questions, depending on the specific lines and boundaries that you happen to live in at whatever your address is or where you're registered to vote here in Colorado. And that can vary quite a bit. And we here at the Colorado Health Foundation believe that all of these questions are actually really important. They um, ultimately impact what quality of life looks like in the community that you call home, not just now in 2022, but potentially for years or generations to come. So we created this local ballot measure tracker tool to make it easier for people to see not just what's appearing on their, their own ballot, but also get a sense of what their neighbors in different parts of the state might be voting on this year as well. Something that was surprising to me, seeing the table, right, or seeing the, the chart, is that the top issue has to do with tax reform and charter amendments and marijuana. Give us a, a flavor of what some of these tax reform issues are across local jurisdictions. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we hope that this tool helps to create greater visibility into. So as I mentioned, there's 11 common statewide ballot measures that are appearing before voters in 2022, but there's actually hundreds of different local level questions that are appearing before voters um, in different cities, counties, special districts across Colorado as well. And we're able to sort on the tracker by specific topic measures. And so this year, when we did that sorting, um, the things that we labeled as tax reform questions are the most common ones heading before voters in local jurisdictions across the state. There are 35 different measures of tax reform um, appearing before voters in different communities in Colorado. And there's actually a reason behind that that's fairly common across those different um, sort of tax questions are heading to voters. And that is, that there are provisions in Colorado's state constitution um, that require specific changes to tax policy in our state, whether those are statewide changes or local level changes to go directly before voters themselves. So in some cases, these tax reform measures are local tax increases or changes to tax policies and all that as well, because your city council, your county commission can't independently make those decisions. They have to refer those, those measures and those kinds of potential policy changes directly to the people so that the people get to vote on those measures too. So while that's the most common by number sort of topic or theme on local level measures this year, that's actually not unusual. And what we've seen across different election cycles in Colorado is because voters are the only ones who can decide that kind of policy in Colorado, it becomes a fairly frequent thing that voters are asked to weigh in on. Was there anything in particular when you were compiling this information that surprised you to see it once it was kind of collated into this infographic type of format? Yeah, um, one of the things that jumps out at us when we look at it this year is there's essentially two different paths that ballot measures can find their way before voters in a general election. One is the signature collection route. So voters, groups of citizens in a local community or across the state of Colorado can go through a signature collection process to put a question directly on the ballot if they collect enough signatures and go through all the steps that are required to have a citizen-initiated measure on the ballot. The other path um, that questions can take to appear on a, a ballot is to have a government body essentially call a question and ask voters to decide on that question directly. Um, and that can happen in the case of the state legislature referring a statewide question to voters. And that, that's the origin story of some of those 
Um, 11 statewide ballot measures are appearing in the 2022 cycle for voters. But it's also the story behind a lot of these local level measures as well. So actually the breakdown in 2022 is uh, about nine and 10, uh, out, nine out of 10 of the local ballot measures appearing before people were questions that your city council, your county commission or some other government entity is asking you as voters um, that they serve to decide directly on this policy question. And it's only 9% of the local ballot measures they're going to appear before people that actually made their way onto the ballot because they were initiated outside of government structures by citizens themselves going through that signature collection process. Colorado Health Foundation put out a poll earlier this year, the Pulse poll, which we covered, that identified some of the top areas of concern for voters. Did that help to inform the development of this tool? Yeah, it helped us to sort these hundreds of different local ballot measure questions into categories and and sort of sort this information in ways that we believe is how people are thinking about what are top concerns in the communities that they live in directly, but then also the state more generally. So for example, on our annual Pulse poll this year, um, we ask people to tell us what they think the top issue of concern for Colorado is, what's keeping them up at night, essentially. And the thing that we heard overwhelmingly this year and in this year's poll is that 86% of people in Colorado are very concerned about the affordability of housing in our state. And we actually see that reflected in the questions they're making their way before voters um, in sort of these local ballot measure questions in communities across the state of Colorado. So shortly behind um, tax reform questions that we talked about already, where there's 35 of those tax measures across different jurisdictions in Colorado, housing related measures are actually um, one of the other most common topics that we're seeing on local ballots across communities in Colorado. There's 23 different local level measures related to housing policy in some shape or form appearing before local voters here in Colorado this year. In some cases, it's a, the specific question is about regulation of short-term rental properties, as an example. But in other cases, it's about the rights of renters um, compared to landlords or to fund the construction of specific housing projects to create more housing supply in communities where there may not be enough housing to go around um, currently. Kyle Rojas Leglider of the Colorado Health Foundation, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. For KGNU and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Shannon Young in Boulder. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low in the mid-30s. Saturday should be mostly sunny with a high around 50 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 40 miles per hour. Saturday night, there's a 90% chance of rain and snow showers with a low in the mid-30s. Winds could gust as high as 50 miles per hour. Sunday, there's a 90% chance of rain and snow showers with a high near 40 degrees. Sunday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 15. There is a 50% chance of snow showers. This has been the news for Friday, October 21st. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.